0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Today, I'm joined by Jennifer Burns, who is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and is an associate professor of history at Stanford University. Jennifer has a fascinating new book out, a biography of the late economist Milton Friedman, titled Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. Welcome, Jennifer.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here.
0: Well, I'm really excited to have you on uh, because your last biography was a biography of Ayn Rand titled Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. I'm curious, like, how did you first get interested in history, economics, and political economy? And how did you get interested in writing biographies about free market thinkers?
1: Yeah, um, I can't say it was an overall plan. So I've always loved history. I've always loved reading. And I also really was drawn to um, reading novels as well as nonfiction. And so um, I had a lot of questions about sort of how ideas move through society, how they get picked up, how they're move from the author or the thinker's mind more broadly. And um, these questions started to kind of focus around Ayn Rand when I was early in graduate school in history. So I knew I wanted a PhD in history. I knew I wanted to do some deep research. And in the first months of graduate school, I kept seeing people reading Ayn Rand, like sort of everywhere, reading her on the bus you know, a friend who doesn't read a lot, suddenly reading Ayn Rand. And I thought, well, let me learn about her as a historical figure. And then I realized there was very little information about her as a historical figure. And I thought, well, she's really important. And people are still reading her today. She definitely had an influence on conservatives and libertarians and our politics. So why don't I figure this out? And so it's pretty unconventional to do biographical work in the context of a history PhD. It's not unheard of for an intellectual historian. And so I began this project on Rand. And I think that was kind of the first step, um, you know, along the road to having the Friedman project as well. Although I didn't know that at the time.
0: Fantastic. I'm, I'm curious, what got you interested in, in Milton Friedman?
1: So, you know, I think when I first started thinking about Friedman, I was thinking of him through the lens of Rand and that he seemed like a popularizer of economic ideas. And what I was fascinated about with Rand was that she had these ideas that you could see some of their origins in sort of political philosophy or political movements, but then she expressed them in fiction. And so I thought of her as kind of working from the bottom up uh, in terms of how she spread her ideas. And then I was thinking, if I'm trying to write a larger history, which I was interested in doing, kind of, of conservative ideas in America. Well, what what is the top strata, the kind of professional, um, you know, university level purveyors of ideas. And so I quickly came to Friedman. And I think what happened along the way was that I became more interested in Friedman as an economist um, than just as a political figure. And so the book really tries to show both aspects of him and and talk about their inner relationship, but also show that there are kind of distinctive projects he was embarked upon.
0: Fantastic, and and so like compared to other Milton Friedman biographies that have been written, uh, Milton Friedman you know only died nearly twenty years ago in, in two thousand six. I'm I'm curious, uh, but there you know there, there have been a, a few that have been written at uh, at this point, um, though not many. I'm curious what makes yours different. I, I believe that this is the first archival biography of Friedman. I'm curious what does that mean um, to somebody that's not. Uh, uh, very uh, illiterate in, in history and, and different types of biographies and what ar- archival work. Uh, yeah, so
1: that know. means that I read what Friedman wrote and produced, and then I also went sort of a layer deeper into um, the structure of his life, so who he was writing letters to, drafts of those first books. Um what he was reading in graduate school, the syllabi he had, and um, the the books he was reading when he was, before he was Milton Friedman, before he was famous, um, the behind the scenes kind of arguments and debates that eventually um, were smoothed out and became part of his published work. And so that's one distinguishing feature that um, I'm I'm not relying on what people said happened or what they remembered happened or what they wrote down for publication happened. I actually dig into what the documentary record generated at the time says. And so in some cases I'm able to correct um, the record pretty significantly. And and one of the people I end up correcting is Milton Friedman himself because he wrote a memoir of his life that's been very influential, Um, but it really was based on his memories and his desire, which I think is laudable to put a positive spin on the people he met and the people he interacted with, and and what I found in the archive is sometimes these were um, more difficult relationships than than he was willing to uh, to write down publicly. So so that's one piece of it. Um, there's just a lot more information about the origins of his ideas and their evolution and development that I was able to find by doing this type of research. And I should say, you know, this is it, I, I spent pretty much as much time writing this book as. Friedman and Anna Schwartz spent writing a monetary history of the United States, and there's about 200 boxes of archival material held at the Hoover Institution, and I pretty much went through those systematically. Um, The other thing I try to do that's different is because I'm a historian, I'm really trying to relate him to the bigger picture, and I'm trying to use him as a lens into social and political and intellectual change over the 20th century. So If I'm talking about what Friedman is doing um, during the Great Depression, I'm gonna kind of zoom out and kind of characterize that time more broadly. Um, Or if I'm talking about the shifts in the 1970s, I'm gonna kind of give us a tour of um, where we are politically versus the 1960s and what's going on and changing. And so you see Friedman reacting to events, um, shaping events, being shaped by events in a way that I think other um treatments of him that are mo- more focused on his ideas or more focused on the public public and published record um that's that's not what they're trying to do
0: fascinating I'm, I'm curious like in the process of of doing all this uh fascinating and amazing archival research I'm going through 200 boxes at the Hoover Institution yeah. um I, I'm sure must be uh, uh thrilling at sometimes and I'm sure some items are are you know maybe uh you know of, of um yeah, just sort of no consequence. I don't. I don't know if, uh, if there's. Uh, uh, I'm sure there's all sorts of uh, details of. of all yeah,
1: sorts there's of all things. like I can tell you what his favorite lunch was at the Quadrangle Club because oh, wow. there's like you know a, a whole folder of receipts from every lunch he had there. And then I decided nobody really knows to know about his love for vanilla ice cream. You know that's kind oh, of. Wow. A sign
0: of it. <laughs> wow. and did, did he play tennis a lot at the quadrangle club too or i think that was a very um, good thing for a lot of
1: there's a bunch of pictures of him on the tennis court so tennis was hugely popular among academics of his generation it was kind of there it was the pickleball of its day i hate to say it but it was right.
0: <laughs> I, I remember when i was an undergrad um uh, gary becker was still alive and uh, at the university of chicago and, and he played a lot of tennis on, on the tennis court so, so i'm not not totally surprised i think a lot of uh, those in the U- University of Chicago Economics Department play a lot of golf uh, nowadays is sort of my, my rough understanding of it. But I, I'm curious, like, what, what were some of the most surprising things that you learned going through these 200 boxes? And, and like, what were things that you thought particularly stood out when you're going through this systematic exercise and and taking on this um, big project of, of, of writing this book?
1: So I think there were kind of two things stand out. One actually came from my work in the Chicago archive. So I, I went and I, in order to characterize the milieu, in which Friedman immersed himself as a graduate student. I went and looked at all the records in Chicago and of his professors, um, which also included him, but also gave me a a flavor for what they were um, thinking about and what they would have been teaching him. And I was really astonished. I kept finding these proposals um, written in the depths of the Great Depression being sent to President Hoover and then President Roosevelt calling for really radical, far-reaching reform in the American economic system, Um, calling for banking reform, um, some of which were the banking reforms that we came to know in the 1935 Banking Act, but but even going further, essentially calling for the outlawing of deposit banking um, and fractional reserve banking, and then um, urgent telegrams, or uh, you know, saying more relief spending is needed. And this was not what I expected to find in the Chicago School of Economics, and so that really. Um, Really, that that was really helpful because I realized, okay, I need to set aside some of my preconceptions. Um, Here I have the teachers of Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of Economics advocating for a much bigger role for government. Um, So I have to set aside my my idea that this is a a laissez faire um, place or laissez faire set of doctrines. It's more complicated than that. So that was really interesting. And that helped me kind of think about Friedman as someone who. Um, was interested in the form and shape of government, as well as in reducing its size. So so again, a little more complexity there. The second major thing I discovered is I kept finding all of these women in the archive that he was working with and collaborating with and letters between them and drafts. And I came to realize that it wasn't simply Anna Schwartz, who's very well known for her co-authorship with him of a monetary history, it wasn't even just um, Rose, director Friedman, who also co-authored several of his popular works. There were these other women I had never heard of, like Dorothy Brady, uh, Margaret Reed, and they played this really foundational role in his economic work. And so that was really not something I thought would be—I I had no idea that would be a theme of the book or a relevant finding. And I think it's—it's it's really one of the um, the major things I have to contribute.
0: Fascinating. So I, I guess like, I, I'm curious, like. Somewhat well known that like Friedman had a, um, a some sort of an intellectual evolution over his lifetime in that he sort of was a Keynesian up until working at the U.S. Treasury Department. I
1: actually don't think that's true. I I will dispute really? that, and I do dispute that. Yeah, I think I think there's a couple reasons that the misconception has is out there, and I think some of the misconception comes from the fact that we have these very clear ideas in our heads now, of what is Keynesian and Keynesianism versus monetarism. And so we tend to look at the past through those two frameworks when um, those aren't always the most accurate frameworks. So what I found again in the archive is he he embraces the early part of the new deal. He embraces relief spending and banking reform. He rejects the major ideas that underlay the New Deal in terms of secular stagnation or the idea that government needs to manage demand. Um, And he's rejecting these by the late 1930s. Um, And he's very clear on that, not in his published work because he's not publishing, but in his teaching. So I have the notes, I, I know what he's teaching his students and I know in these notes, you can see him expressing very strong skepticism about sort of all aspects of what's emerging as the fiscal revolution. Now then World War II breaks out and he goes and he's working for the treasury department and he is sounding to our ears like a Keynesian because he's saying "Um, tax, tax to prevent inflation. Um, We need more taxation. And so this is where I think think it's important to keep the broader context in mind. This is um, a Jewish man, very aware that we're fighting Nazi Germany and very aware that a wartime economy is not like a peacetime economy. Um, And also very aware that what is the set of policy options out there in DC? Um, If you don't tax, you do price control. And so for him, taxation is a lesser um, evil than price control. And at the same time that he's saying all this, which, and then final point is these public statements are made as an employee of the treasury department. So again, this seems like something Friedman is saying. This isn't like, so Mr. Friedman in your capacity as a scholar and intellectual, what do you think we should do? It's no, Mr. Friedman is a paid employee of the Treasury Department appearing before Congress. What does the Treasury Department think of this policy? And then I've got his letters, you know, and he's writing with his friends. And the phrase inflation is always a monetary phenomenon is in this correspondence. And he's a believer in this idea. And this is in the period when he's supposedly a Keynesian. So I, I don't think once you add the historical context and the bigger picture, I don't think that claim can be substantiated.
0: So you're like, but what about like when he writes capitalism and freedom? You know, he, he's got mm-hmm. you know, this whole chapter on fiscal policy. It's highly, highly critical of uh, you know what he terms balancing the wheel and running sort of counter-cyclical, uh deficits. It, is that not con- uh, sort of a change or, or any kind of a break um, at all from sort of the pre World War II Friedman? Or like if you get to, um... I, I, I feel like over his life he like increasingly becomes like even more uh, you know libertarian um, and and in- increasingly opposed to any sort of government intervention, even sort of his. Sort of view of of uh, I think monetism sort of shifts a little bit too. Whereas I think you know, in in sort of the earlier period he's sort of fine with I think more sort of activist sort of Fed policy, and then by by the end he's sort of very much in favor of you know adopting some sort of a, a money growth mechanical uh, you know target um, you know a percentage change target of uh, you know money growth and and saying that you know the I remember some interview he did I think as recent as the 2000s, early 2000s before he passed, that he'd be in favor of uh, of a computer, you know, uh, yeah. running, you know, money supply rather than uh, the Federal Reserve. So I, I feel like he increasingly became more libertarian um, and, and increasingly skeptical of, of any sort of government spending or intervention over his lifetime. But is that Sort of so yeah, growing. let me
1: let me take that in two pieces. It, and to some degree, it is true that he becomes more anti-government, especially than he is in this this, this early 90, 30s period when we're in an economic crisis. Um, and some of that uh, we could say, OK, it's an evolution in his thought. We could also say, what is he looking at and what is happening with the growth of government? Right. And so when you go through the great society, you come out to the other side of the great society, he says, you know, I'm now learning the logic of the state is growth and we need to, and also not even just the great society, but Nixon as well continues this pattern of growth. And so then he says, I need to be much more aggressive in my anti-government views because uh, what's happening is there's this dynamic of sort of perpetual growth that maybe I didn't grasp before. So I think some of that's in relation to the size of the state. And he ends up saying that I found this really interesting, his ideal you know, federal budget would be something like 10% of GDP is, is what he would like the size of the federal government to be. And it's 30 heading towards 40 during the latter part of his life. So he's perceiving that this this wartime growth has never reversed and that the, he thinks the political dynamic is just towards ever growth. So I think part of that is a context that he starts to put the brakes on more sharply. So that's definitely true. For the monetarism thing, I mean, it comes and goes in waves. So there's a period in the early 1950s when he's making headlines, like economist says abolish the Fed. I mean, he is the original and the Fed in the 50s. And then he sort of figures out, I think, like, this may get you good headlines, but it doesn't really get you influenced to show up and say, let's abolish the, the central bank. So he starts moderating his ideas. And I think that's when he comes up with this, like money growth percentage rule, which enabled him to appear more moderate and that he's not saying let's abolish the federal reserve, but he is saying let's remove its discretionary policymaking or let's have a much more of a check on it. Um, by passing, like he would like Congress to legislate, um, you know, money supply should only grow at 4% a year or something like that, which would mean the Fed then would be a technical implementer of policy, not a discretionary designer of policy. And one thing that's so interesting is one of his big allies in this crusade against the Fed is White Patman, who is a Texas populist Democrat, you know, sort of straight out of um, the Dust Bowl and he hates the Fed because he thinks it's like banking money power that's you know grinding down the little guy, and so he'd like to get rid of the Fed, and Friedman would like to get rid of the Fed, and the two of them become like political allies, you know. And Patman is constantly calling him before Congress because he loves that he's got this University of Chicago guy who's saying pretty much the same thing he is—that the Fed is unaccountable and undemocratic and all of this.
0: Fascinating, fascinating. So I'm curious. In terms of um, sort of examining the role of Milton's authors or co-authors and colleagues and and other sort of influences, you know, like Anna Schwartz, uh, Milton Friedman's own wife, Rose Friedman, um, how instrumental uh, were they in in making Milton Friedman a household name uh, as far as economists go? And and what are some of the sort of uh, uh, hidden stories that you've uncovered in terms of sort of the, the development of, of a lot of uh, Friedman's key ideas in terms of who um, uh, who was influential um, that yeah, they didn't I mean, maybe realize were as influential.
1: Yeah, I think so. So I'll just start with Schwartz. And um, I tell this story um, in my book, but it's not you know the full focus. So I think there's definitely room for someone. I'm hoping someone will come along and dig into this more, but you know, they have this research project and and they are toiling away and Schwartz is crunching the numbers and they're finding, you know, the data. And at a certain point she says, well, what do you want this to be? And he's like, well, I just think we ought to quickly write up what we found. And she's like, you know, I think it will be really a shame if we just do a quick write up. I think there's a lot of stuff here. And then she's like, oh, by the way, I spent all this time looking at Confederate money, right? Which is not on his radar at all, but she loves history. And so basically over time, she convinces him to make this, you know, a story over a century long story of money in the United States. And, you know, she finds all these details about the Federal Reserve and Benjamin Strong and all of this. And so she really makes it into a narrative and a story. And I think this is what accounts for the book's success. You know, if he had just published a research report of tables of money, economists would have argued about it. Um, but it wouldn't have had the same impact it had both in economics and more broadly, because it, it was a new interpretation of what happened in the Great Depression that was both looking at money and economic forces and institutions and people and personalities. And I, and Schwartz really brought all that to the table and also was the one who was able to like make the book happen because she had the time to do the work. So that's one huge piece of it. And that really you know, that's the book, but all of the research they did was kind of the foundation of monetarism. It made Friedman feel very confident that major changes in the economy were caused by major changes in the money supply. And it's because they had this 150 year series that they did as part of the book. So, so all the theoretical work then that comes out of it, that he publishes on his own, it's really based on those findings to which Schwartz was essential, um, the other one is the permanent income hypothesis, which is really well known among economists and is st- still an idea. One of these ideas of Friedman's that's just sort of been incorporated into how people, how economists think. And um, he had thought a little bit about this in his earlier work on dentists and doctors, kind of measuring income and thinking about income. But he really got the going- occupational
0: licensing work by like in his. Uh, doctoral dissertation in his doctoral dissertation um,
1: right And, and so he and kuznets had looked at income for a lot of different professions so what happened was he had a group of women economists that he was very close to because of um they were all friends of his wife rose and he socialized with them and he just kind of he lived breathed talked economics so he found this correspondence. He actually intercepted this correspondence sent to Rose and it was um, Dorothy Brady and Margaret Reed. And they were trying to figure out how to sort of talk about consumption when it came to farm families that really had a kind of feast or famine. You know, one year they might buy a lot of farm equipment then they don't buy another farm equipment for 10 years. Um, you know, they have a good harvest, they have a bad harvest. And so how do you sort of smooth this out? How do you think about it? And, and how do you understand the decisions that they make? And so these women had all their data and they were kind of puzzling through it. And they would come to his summer house in New Hampshire and they would all sit around the fire and talk until late in the evening. And they all collectively started thinking about this concept of permanent income, that what if the way farmers are making decisions is sort of based on a forecast of how they think things are going to go over the course of their life cycle, as opposed to how things are going immediately right now. And then they kind of put that on all these empirical findings and were like, you know, this actually really seems to explain things. So um, that was the origin of the permanent income hypothesis. And what I discovered is that the reason Friedman wrote it up, that it went from discussions around the fire to a, an actual paper and then a book, was he was trying to get Margaret Reed and Dorothy Brady hired at Chicago, And this was part of his effort to um, push out the Kohl's commission and sort of reconstruct Chicago economics as combining, you know, empirical work and theory. And so Margaret Reed was under consideration for a job. And he wrote these ideas up into a paper that he could kind of circulate around and say like, look how great she is. Look how important this work is. And he did succeed. Margaret Reed was hired, but Dorothy Brady, he did succeed in getting her a temporary position, but not a full-time position. So, so then he gets really into the idea and writes it up and publishes it a book as a book. And, and he's the only author on the book, but if you read the preface, he's very open. He calls it a joint product. He says, My hand held the pen, but we all we all came up with this idea together. And my reading on that is because he was connected to these women who in turn were connected to consumption economics, he just had this, he he had data and ideas and perspectives that other economists of the time did not because the field as a whole was focusing more on ever more sophisticated macro models. Um, and they weren't really interested in these granular decisions about like, how, how do farmers spend their money? So I felt like this was his sort of secret weapon that he took these women economists seriously and it had a really big impact on his career and on the field as a whole.
0: Fascinating. So- one other uh, thing I wanted to um, uh, talk about too is, um, you know, Milton Friedman gets a lot of attention for his time uh, in Chile, you know, meeting with um, Pinochet, uh, you know, the uh, then um, uh, dictatorial leader of, of Chile who um, enacted all these um, liberalization uh, economic policy reforms. Um, you know, Milton Friedman gets a lot of um, uh, flack for meeting with uh, Pinochet from the sort of the general. Uh, I think press and and, and public, um, but I, I'm curious. Um, you know, did you learn anything new about this episode? You know, where uh, you, I think Friedman went uh, to Chile for I think uh, maybe only a couple of weeks, but also you know, the University of Chicago provided uh, training to uh, many uh, Chileans who would ultimately serve in the Pinochet government and and successive uh, um, Chilean uh, governments. I'm curious, did you learn anything new about um about that whole episode in your um in all your research for the book?
1: Yeah, I actually spend a, a chapter on it because it has been such an important part of the kind of Friedman mythology um uh, you know, for mostly the mostly the demonology, maybe I should say. Um and so a couple of things I learned and, and it I don't know, some are new and some are just Pay more attention. that But if you look at the chronology of this sort of series of events, what's really interesting is um, one: when Pinochet came to power, he had no intention of pursuing what we would call a neoliberal economic program, um, and he was in power for a year or more before he realized that he needed to change um, change up what he was doing. So he the, this wasn't the kind of guiding idea behind the coup. Um, and then, um, the other piece that's interesting is the decision to kind of move to more market-based reforms had already happened before Friedman came and Friedman really had nothing to do with that decision. He wasn't close to the decision makers. He wasn't connected to the regime. He didn't really know what was going on. He was, um, it was requested that he come visit sort of after the policy had been decided to sort of sell the policy, although it's a totalitarian regime, they still want buy-in. And so he comes and he's there for six days. So that's, you know, uh, not week, six days, he meets with a bunch of people and then he flies out. And, um, you know, in retrospect, I think his role has been very exaggerated, um, because it makes for a good story of good and evil. Um, and I do think one thing I did uncover was a travelogue and I quote from it extensively of of his, he encountered his, he recounted his trip there. And on the one hand, it really tells you everything that he did. On the other hand, it, it can be a bit discomforting to read because he really, he was pretty blase about the political repression he witnessed. Um, I don't know if it's blase or naivete, like he would say, oh, like, you know, everything seems normal, except there's soldiers everywhere with really big guns, you know? And so I think he sort of decided this is how they do things in South America. And, you know, they don't have freedom. Um, He did believe that if they liberalize their economy, their society would eventually liberalize. Um, And he did tell that to Pinochet and he did follow up under pressure and try to advocate for more political prisoners being freed. but he didn't have a very strong kind of moral reaction that, you know, against the regime that I think a lot of his critics wanted him to have. Um, the way I come at it is just to think about this broader question of engagement, you know, um, given that I think inflation was about 300 percent annually when he went. It had been 600 under Allende. It came down to about 300 Um, You know, he's sort of the world's foremost expert on inflation, and he's requested to come and talk about a policy that he thinks will be better for the country and better for all Chileans if they live in a society that has stable prices rather than 300% price rise. Um, Is it legitimate for him to go, um, even if the regime is, uh, you know, an autocratic or, um, you know, violent sort of fascist regime? Is it legitimate to engage? And he clearly thought it was legitimate to engage. And I think a lot of his critics think the proper thing to do in that case is not to engage. Um, And that's how you stay kind of on the right side of history is by not engaging. Um, And so that's not the choice Friedman made. And I think think it's worth debating, like was that the right choice or not? But I don't think you can immediately conclude that that was a morally bankrupt choice um, given that he felt he could do a lot of good by stabilizing the Chilean economy. And he also believed that stabilizing the Chilean economy wasn't necessarily going to mean stabilizing Pinochet's rule but actually the opposite. That once you had a more <clears throat> stable and prosperous market-based society, eventually that society would no longer put up with a dictator. And uh, uh, you know, as it turned out, it, Pinochet did leave power and Friedman did view that as ultimately a success story. And it really influenced how he looked at China um, for example, he said, you know, now that China is liberalizing, the Communist Party is not going to last. And so, so far, he's been wrong on that one. But the Chilean experience was very powerful for him, um, because it suggested if you did liberalize the economy, eventually, you would lay the foundations for a democratic society.
0: And this all goes back to the first chapter of uh, capitalism and freedom, uh, you know, the 1962 Friedman book, where he talks about the relationship between economic freedom and political freedom and that you need economic freedom in order to have political freedom and and one sort of the first leads uh to the second uh eventually um and i think he he may have even uh, recanted some of that uh in his last uh sort of days in the 2000s about uh when it sort of became uh increasingly clear that china wasn't going democratic anytime soon i'm i'm curious um you know, how did you choose um, you know, your title, Milton Friedman, the last conservative? I'm sure you know Milton Friedman hated the notion of being called a conservative uh, and preferred to be called uh, a libertarian. Um, you know, then again, ma- many libertarians criticize Friedman for supporting limited government, uh, and, and many libertarians would say you know Friedman isn't a, a real libertarian. I'm curious, how did you come to um, decide on that title?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I decided on it. I, I have some ambivalence about it, but I um, couldn't really end up in the end find a title that I liked better. And I think there's two ways in which it's justifiable to consider Friedman a conservative. And the first is just within the American context, he worked with and allied himself with and was part of a political movement that called itself conservative. And, you know, I've, I've written about this at length elsewhere. You know, the word conservative in American <coughs> in the American context, excuse me, <clears throat> um, is distinctive. It's not what we think of in the broader sense of political theory or political thought or European history. Um, American conservatism <clears throat> is kind of its own unique beast. And so, that's the word they use for better or for worse. And um Friedman was you know empirically allied with this movement. He didn't really partner with Democrats or New Deal liberals in any significant way. so so there's the the kind of political affiliation piece. Um, but there's another piece, if we think about his intellectual approach, um he was someone who, as an economist, um tried to preserve and rescue um more traditional ways of approaching economics and more traditional economic analysis. And so we can see this in the quantity theory of money, which people thought was totally outdated. And he said, no, actually, there's still something here. I think we can update it, we can revise it a little bit, and it can become the foundation of monetarism, which became a new school of economics. Um, He's also, in some ways, the last institutional economist, you know, the work that he and Schwartz did, of really digging into um, price data and setting up you know, these tables, um, that was, a, that was sort of a, a lot of what people like Wesley Mitchell did as pioneers in the field. And he kept doing that and he kept believing that was really important and empirical testing of theories was critical. So, you know, he, he knew the math, he, he was in many ways, a neoclassical economist, but he didn't leave behind these older approaches and and he actually preserved them and sort of revitalized them. So I think in that way, he's a conservative, um, but I think overall, the title and and calling him the last conservative is, I think, in, in both of those ways, those things he did are not really happening that much anymore. Um, you know, uh, economics, it's it maybe broadening a bit in the interest in, you know, psychology or decision making or big data, but, but mostly grew more narrow after Friedman's day. And well, the conservative political movement, I think, is changing quite a bit, and that synthesis that Friedman represented kind of born out of the cold war um, is not as powerful and dominant as it once was. And so, yeah, I don't really know what happens next, but I do have a feeling that Friedman is of a time and a place and the the new Friedman or the next Friedman will be significantly different. I would say.
0: Fascinating. It, uh, this is exactly what I was going to ask you about next. You know, it, it's been almost 20 years since Friedman's passing in 2006 and I remember in this uh, April twenty twenty Politico interview, uh, you know, uh, then soon to be President Joe Biden declared that uh, Milton Friedman isn't running the show anymore. Yeah, uh, and and there have been sort of I think similar sorts of um, uh, let's say uh, you know dancing on Milton Friedman's grave type moments. I feel like over the past or in within the uh, I, I think the more uh, um, progressive sort of uh, side of the press. I'm curious. Like, do you think that uh, Friedman's influence um, has has waned in in some respects, but maybe not others? Like, obviously, many young people today, I think, aren't as familiar uh, with his ideas unless, like, they've gone on YouTube to watch, you know, his famous TV series Free to choose. But since the Great Recession, which seems to be like a bit of a, a turning point, it does seem to be like there has been a growing revolt um, across both political parties against the you know old. You know, Washington consensus, free market doctrine of the 1980s certainly a revolt of the old, uh, you know, Buckley fusionist um, group of uh, of of conservatives, which you know Milton Friedman was was certainly a part of in the sense that you know libertarians were sort of one of the three uh, legs in the in that three-legged fusionist stool. But and then again, like we're also seeing like a renewed interest in a, in a lot of uh, Milton Friedman uh, type ideas, and there's been a lot of sweeping policy changes in in the U.S. Uh, in a number of areas like occupational licensing and school choice. Mm -hmm. We've got all these uh, states that um, now have uh, passed uh, universal school choice vouchers or are enacting occupational licensing reciprocity. Uh, Is it uh, also, you know, think about inflation, you know, we're seeing sort of renewed interest in the monetary causes of of inflation with the uh, big uptick in inflation in the early 2020s. Um, Do you think like Milton Friedman's legacy is still alive in other ways, even though uh, that sort of uh, uh, you know, big free market consensus thing seems to be uh, shifting a bit?
1: Yeah, I, I really do. I mean, that's another sort of quibble I have with my own title about, um, because, you know, by the end of the book, I what I'm really trying to show is that Friedman is not just a conservative thinker anymore. He's really become um, taken up across the political spectrum. And and part of it is as common sense that people have forgotten was sort of a new idea. And even that Biden quote, right? Like, well, why is Biden saying that? Like, that's actually reflecting a kind of inter-democratic party debate between moderates and progressives. And Friedman kind of represents the moderate democratic stance, which is really astonishing to say when you look at the overall trajectory of when he was alive. But I think that's true. And I do think there is a bit of a revival underway in in some of his ideas, because they're still unfolding. Like you said, occupational licensure, school choice. Um, I mean, even like drug legalization in a weird way. And I think that the last years have been very much a, a vindication for the broad Freeman perspective on inflation. I mean, you had a lot of people saying this rise in M2 is really problematic and. Um, Others saying, no, it's not. That's what happened a long time ago. Like that's back in the dark ages. We thought M2 mattered and boom, lo and behold, then you have broad inflation. And I, I dig into this to some degree in the latter part of the book, because there's also the zero low bound and why didn't that cause inflation? And I think, you know, there's there's some explanations around that. But I think regardless of where the inflation debate settles, I think when you're talking about these questions, it's always good to go back to the foundations and in. Friedman is a foundation. Friedman and Schwartz are the foundation of understanding inflation and deflation in American history. And um, I think it's really worth going back and seeing um, what he had to say. And I think I always, you know, as a historian, I try to fly up onto the kind of 30,000 foot level. Um, and if the granularity of monetarism breaks down in different institutional arrangements, I think you can still step back to the big picture. And say a lot of the the bigger insights he had are still really applicable today.
0: Absolutely, I I think people don't quite appreciate how much of a paradigm shift uh, monetarism was. You know, you think even as recent as the 1970s, um, you know, there was still sort of a, a belief that you know, uh, you know price controls could work um, in in fighting inflation and in um, that you know corporations and, and sort of corporate greed uh, played a big role and, and markets played a big role in inflation you know even as recent as the the Nixon Foundation but you know Friedman and Schwartz um, really changed all of that with uh, the monetary history of the United States and, and just Milton Friedman in general I think becoming more uh, popular in the public eye well this has been such an interesting conversation Jennifer it's been a, a real honor to have you on and I know many people are very excited to read your book thank you so much for joining us today
1: yeah thanks for having me I appreciate it.
0: Today, our guest was Jennifer Burns, who is a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, an associate professor of history at Stanford University, and is author of a fascinating new book titled Milton Friedman, The Last Conservative. This is the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century podcast, where we talk about economics, markets, and public policy. I'm John Hartley, your host. Thanks so much for joining us.